My name is Bob Peruca. I'm one of the elders here. And uh, it's my turn to exhort today. Pastor Paul is at the Ranch of Hope in Texas. And he is uh, getting a well-deserved rest. Um, Grant had mentioned a few uh, weeks ago when he was up here that um, it's really an effort and uh, it's challenging to put together uh, a presentation that is uh, cogent and meaningful and um, can encourage and edify. So um, I do appreciate Pastor Paul's ability to um, get up here every week. And in fact, I kind of liken him to a LeBron James, you know, he's, or maybe a, maybe a Michael Jordan. I don't know, Dan says he prefers Michael Jordan, but he's our star. Uh, and uh, he's toward the end of his career, but we want to stretch him out. We want him to play 26 minutes, 28 minutes, and then come in at overtime and not play 48 minutes and wear him out. So we do appreciate the opportunity as elders to come up here and uh, speak and give him a break. Before I begin, um, I'd like to uh, share that as I'm exhorting here, I'm really talking to myself because even yesterday I had a situation where I could have handled something differently. And it reminded me of Psalm 51.3, for I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. So <laughs> I didn't handle it in a very uh, Christian way. And so uh, as I read this and I exhort, I'm really talking to myself as well. So I humbly ask your prayers. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this day you've given us. Thank you for your mercy, your grace. Thank you for your opportunity today to exhort, to be a part of the building up of your church. I pray today that uh, you would activate the Holy Spirit in our hearts, that you would renew our minds, and that you would illuminate our understanding as uh, we uh, dive into your word today, Father, this book, this short epistle that is so full of meaning and significance. I ask that Christ be exalted and lifted up, and that you would be glorified in this process. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So today's reading is Jude 20 and 21. I've entitled this, this exhortation, Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now hear the word of the Lord. But you, beloved, building yourselves up together in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of your Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So one of my intentions today is to redirect our focus to this oft neglected book of God's inspired word, the book of Jude. It's the fifth shortest book in Scripture. It's only 25 verses long. It's 65 out of 66 books, and its place is right before the mammoth work of the Revelation. So 
I've been a Christian for over 20 years, and I've heard a sermon on Jude maybe twice. So I think it's fair to say that this book tends to get neglected. However, spending time in this, in this rich epistle in our Bible study, uh, I would say that this epistle, epistle bears much fruit. And though it was written almost 2,000 years ago, it has direct application to our lives and our culture, like all of Scripture today. There is nothing new under the sun, and the challenges we face today are mirrored in the book of Jude. So there are three points that I'd like us to think through together today. Point number one, the Christian life is active. Immediately upon being reborn, we are called to action. Our lives have a trajectory, and this trajectory is either in a positive or negative direction in regards to the faith. We are never static. Secondly, there's a severe consequence of judgment for those who seek to alter the gospel and lead believers astray. And third, there's a great reward for Christians as we persevere in the faith, and we contend for the faith, and we run the race that is set before us. So let's take a look at the four verbs in this passage. Building, praying, keep, and waiting. In being called to action, we are to confirm our calling and election, 2 Peter 1.10. We are exhorted to live a certain way, obeying what Christ has instructed in us to, to obey and what we are to believe and how we are to live. If I remember one thing from English grammar is that verbs are action words. So let's look at the first verb, building. The theme of building is found throughout Scripture. Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. 1 Corinthians 14.20, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in the building up of the church. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. And then finally, from our Lord, Matthew seven twenty four, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. So... We can all relate to the act of building. It's a satisfying enterprise to build something, whatever it is. It's a fence, furniture, an addition, a house. For several years, I drove the northern Baja coast, coastline back and forth to our apparel factory in Ensenada. And in 2006, I dove in and I bought a piece of property about 100 yards from the ocean in a gated community. It's a beautiful spot. My contractor, who I nicknamed the maestro was talented, yet I later discovered that he had a bit of a slippery slide. And I also had a plumber who he nicknamed Leaky Lopez. So the, the building of the house was <laughs> quite the journey, and I experienced several sleepless nights wondering what I had gotten myself 
and our family into with this venture. Dealing with a different culture from my gringo perspective was one thing. But there were all kinds of issues we discovered after the house was built. There was the flood resulting from a faulty seal on the top bathroom tub where water gushed down the stairs and out the front door. There was the unintended waterfall down the north wall of the front room when it rained. I could go on, but the most interesting issue came about when I ran my first load of laundry. During the rinse cycle, I walked outside, and I noticed that there was suds streaming down the side of the house and out into the street. After further examination, I realized that the large hole on the side of the house was unconnected to any drainage pipe because it had never been hooked up to the normal drain outflow. So, taking several deep breaths, I approached the maestro the next day, and I brought this incomplete work to his attention. He paused. He shook his head. He said, Bob, I told those guys to hook that pipe up. I can't believe they didn't do it. But your house has a firm foundation. All right. That's great, Art. We've got a waterfall down the wall of the house. We have suds going out the side of the, out along the side of the house. He said, the foundation is strong. This house is not going anywhere. So that was his go-to response when there was a problem discovered. The house was not going anywhere. It had a firm foundation. So to the maestro's credit, after several makeovers, repairs, leaks, and revisions, the house is still standing strong 15 years later. It does indeed have a firm foundation with deep trenches, lots of cement, lots of rebar, and it's firm. So the moral of the story is the foundation of any building is critical. Jude likewise exhorts the believers, God's beloved, to build upon the strong foundation of your most holy faith. That would be, as verse 3 states, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. There's a finality to this phrase, once and for all. It's a decisive event. This is the faith. It has been delivered. God has spoken, as Francis Schaeffer would say. Here, the faith indicates the content of the message taught by the apostles and held in common by all Christians. The faith, referred to in verse 3, is the authoritative body of belief given by God to the church through the apostles. Now, together with the Old Testament, this faith is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. The apostolic witness, as found in the New Testament, is the standard for the church. 2 John 9 states, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has the Father and the Son. So the church is to be built up together on this foundation of the faith. This corporate growth benefits the church body as well as the individual. So as believers, through building on this most holy faith, when we are actively engaged in the process of expanding God's kingdom, we are living stones that grow into a holy temple in the Lord, Ephesians 2.23. 
So looking again at verse 3, we are to contend for this most holy faith. Now, contend is an interesting word. It's based on the Latin word contendere, which means to draw tight, to make an effort, to strive, to stretch, to compete. This verse is a favorite of Christian apologists, and understandably so, as the goal of apologetics is a defense of the Christian faith. I'm honored to be part of this very active church with this emphasis on apologetics from Pastor Paul, who does not shy away from any challenge to defend the faith, to those who are involved in midnight shows on on KKLA, the radio shows, the apologetics.com show, uh, the apologetics conferences, and the podcasts. These are all part of contending for the faith. And the concept of contending for the faith can be extended to our church ministries who are engaged in the apologetic enterprise through the worship team, the elders, the deacons, the church staff, the fellowship meals. I would also include those hosting Bible studies, bringing friends to church, showing hospitality to others. How about the faithful mothers and fathers bringing their children up in this most sacred and holy faith as you lay a foundation for your children to grow up one day to defend the faith? That's amazing. We realize on the one hand we're a hospital, a church full of sinners, and we're in need of pure grace with nothing in our hands to bring. Yet, I'm encouraged by the striving, the effort, the battle that we all engage in, contending for the most holy and sacred faith in the stations of life that everybody finds themselves in. The Apostle Paul sums up this idea in Romans. Romans 8, 4, Romans 8, 4 through 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. But why did the apostle, he's not an apostle, excuse me, why did Jude write this epistle? What was his his intent in writing this short epistle? There's one word, heresy. Heretics had entered the church and were looking to rend the social fabric of the flock. So let's take a moment here to define our terms. What is heresy? I'm going to quote Dr. Robert Godfrey on this as his definition of heresy says. Some people use the word heresy simply to mean any error or a fairly serious error in theology. But classically... The word heresy was used to describe those theological errors so serious that it would deprive one of salvation. There are some errors that are there are some errors that are so huge they're really cutting us off from God because we have so misunderstood him and his truth. So this is why a correct understanding of the fundamentals of the faith, who God is, who we are, and what Christ has accomplished on our behalf is so critical. In fact, salvation hangs in the balance of a correct understanding of the Word of God and who God is. So Jude starts out writing this epistle about something other than heresy. Verse 3, Dear friends, although I was very eager to you to write about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So why the sudden turn in Jude's subject from the salvation we share to contending for the faith. There's an urgency to Jude's calling the congregation together to address 
this new challenge that entered the church. False prophets had weaseled their way into the church. They were slipped in unnoticed, promoting a libertine lifestyle with a highly charged sexuality. So Jude 4 reads, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. These people had made their way in to the Christian community by feigned relationship and flattery. And Jude's task is to unmask them, to expose them, while at the same time issuing a stern warning for his flock not to be taken in by this false teaching. These heretics are marked out for judgment. They had altered the doctrine of grace of God and turned it into a justification for sexual excess. They have read the doctrine of grace through their own corruption and transformed it into something wholly other and therefore had become apostates and turncoats. So for the next several verses, Jude draws on archetypal examples of sin from the Old Testament, warning his readers again of the greater judgment to come upon false teachers. They will pay for their sin of misleading the faithful, and Jude puts these heretics in the same category as the transgressors of Sodom and Gomorrah, who had departed, as we know, from the natural order of things. They have gone the way of Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. That's 1 John 3.12. Jude also cites the sons of Korah, who led the rebellion against the authority of Moses and Aaron. Their resulting divine judgment is paralleled by the heretics' rebellion against the church's authority and their ability to lead others astray. So Jude is reaching back into the Old Testament to show how there's a parallel here between the current situation in the church that he's encountering and the Old Testament. Again, there is nothing new under the sun. So Jude continues his attacks. He spends a lot of time here going after these guys. Jude 12 through 13. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Wow. Wow. thinking about this, these uh, images, and the, uh, the farmer waits for rain, and he sees the clouds, hoping for relief from drought, yet the waterless clouds are empty of promise. As Pastor Paul has indicated in our study of Revelation, the use of the ocean as a metaphor points to, points to evil. The heretics are like wild, stormy waves that would cause chaos and destruction. And what would it feel like to be a, a wandering star cut loose from the sovereignty of God's control over the universe, headed for utter darkness that has been reserved forever for these wandering stars. We get the feeling that Judas filled with jealous, righteous rage for those trying to infiltrate his flock. So while Jude paints a vivid scene of the doom that awaits these seeking to disturb and divide the unity of the church, His urgent call is again to warn believers and warn us of these false teachers that proclaim an antinomianism that projects Jesus as Savior 
but not Jesus as Lord. So let's look at the second verb, pray. Jude calls the church to prayer. They are to pray in the Holy Spirit. The heretics, in verse 19, are devoid of the Spirit. And what marks the church out from the world is the possession of the Spirit and communion with God through His agency. Praying in the Spirit defines the life of us, of the true people of God, by God's grace. The apostolic faith and the Holy Spirit, word and spirit, are the defining characteristics of the true Christian community. The gospel is held forth, and the Spirit is at work renewing the minds of every believer in every true Christian church. Ephesians 6.18, Paul exhorts us to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So we pray for the presence of, of, and the help of the Spirit. We attend to the preaching of the, God's Word, which is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. It's Timothy 3.16. We confess our sins and abstain from sin so as not to grieve the Spirit of God. James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Again, we are to act. Christianity demands that we act. Praying is active. Praying is intentional, where we intentionally lay up our requests to the creator and sustainer of the universe in reverence, humility, and sincerity. So Jude exhorts the believers then to keep themselves in the love of God. What could be better to be kept than to be kept in the love of God? This is an imperative. Believers are to act in a way that will protect and guard them from heresy. The heretics, like the ancient prototypes Jude cites, did, did not keep their proper place. But they crossed the line to participate outside of their allotted domain. The exodus generation and Sodom and Gomorrah were guilty of not keeping the proper order laid down by God. The heretics were trying to divert the church down a similar path by altering the gospel and persuading members to follow their licentious lifestyle. Jude calls the believers not only to contend for the faith, but to guard, to hold on to the faith that they have received. Verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, God will preserve our faith. However, God's preservation of the saints does not minimize our responsibility to persevere in faith and to support each other's perseverance. We keep each other in the love of God through close ecclesial fellowship and prayer, and so we are accountable to each other for that. The imperative of action is rooted in God's steadfast love, shown through his act of grace. This grace is a part of God's gracious gift. The inclination for us to act righteously comes from God and is rooted in the character of God. The believers are to obey the commands of God, to hold on to these truths, and to maintain a certain state of purity through focused, intentional effort and prayer. Supplication to the commands of Christ, participation in the sacraments, and holy living. To make our calling certain, 
Keeping themselves in the love of God echoes verse 1 where Jude identifies Christians as those who are beloved by God and kept for Jesus Christ. God's love was the cause of their election, and Jude exhorts them to stay in this love of God. So we're now in our last verb in this verse, wait. That's hard for me, to wait. Believers are to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. There's an anxious expectation of the kingdom of God and the final consummation. The vivid hope of Christ's return is part and parcel of being a Christian, yet we live godly lives in the present. We have a lively expectation of final consummation, and that hope is not escapist, but frames and informs our life in the present age. As Pastor Paul indicates that when we live heavenly-minded, we are joyful and at peace, knowing that this life is not all there is. We are blessed with mercy, which is the compassion, kindness, or clemency extended to those in need. Mercy is the opposite of judgment, which, which will befall those who disobey the gospel, who harden their hearts when hearing the good news. First Peter one, First Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. This merciful, gracious future is what the Christian, the true believer, has to look forward to, and is the mercy that Jude exhorts his church to hold fast to. By keeping themselves in the love of God, genuine followers of Christ stand in contrast, again, to those Old Testament examples where they did not keep their place in submission to God. They rebelled. These people are kept in chains, awaiting judgment. Not a very popular message today. Believers can anticipate the mercy of Jesus Christ shown supremely in his coming resurrection. Their end, our end, is filled with hope, is filled with glory, and is even further impetus to avoid the way of the heretics. God's mercy is supremely shown in human salvation through faith in the person and work of Christ. The mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ shown to them upon his coming will bring eternal life anticipating the final day when we will all have resurrected bodies and live eternally with God. Psalm 27, 18. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Waiting is active. When I wait on God's timing, I need to actively address my impatience and focus my heart in another direction. Waiting on God's plan to unfold. In the midst of present trouble, we are called not to give up, no matter how trying our circumstances, but to rather give God time to answer. It's tough. I'm not sure about you, but this is one of the greatest challenges of the Christian walk for me. I'm a task guy. Give me a list so I can get stuff done. Just ask my wife. I make a list each day, then take joy 
in crossing off the tasks accomplished. And when finished, I take even greater joy in throwing away that piece of paper. There's a great satisfaction to crumpling that paper up and tossing it in the trash can. However, the problem is half the time I have to reach back in that trash can because there's something important on that piece of paper. I actually call the trash can my second filing cabinet. My point is that waiting requires faith, trust, hope, and discipline. It takes effort to wait. Yet we do wait for that glorious day when Jesus comes back to renew all things, to make everything right. Revelation 22.30, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Revelation, as Pastor Paul has pointed out, is meant to give us comfort that the victory is won. Yet we as Christians experience longing for the realization of God's purposes accompanying the second coming. This seems to be what Jude has in mind as we wait for the mercy of Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So as we close, let's, let's think through this passage together one more time as I read it and take a look at its richness in regards to the doctrine of the Trinity. But you, beloved, building yourselves up together in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of your Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So all three persons of the Godhead are referenced here. All three are involved in our salvation and keeping us in the love of God. We are elected by the Father who, in Ephesians, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and by whom we are adopted in Christ Jesus. We are redeemed by the Son, again in Ephesians 1, in whom we have redemption through his blood. We are delivered from the guilt of sin by our faith in Jesus' person and work by the blood of Christ shed at the cross. We are sealed by the Spirit since when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit who is a guarantee of our inheritance. Christian life is an active life. We build, we keep, we pray, we wait, we endure, we persevere, we contend. All with the power and grace of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jude 24, 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this day you've given us. Thank you for this opportunity, Father. We pray that uh, this coming week uh, you would bless us, you would have us act, knowing that we've received with nothing in our hands to bring, your salvation, your regeneration, that we have received Jesus in our hearts and our minds, that you would continue to renew our minds and illuminate our minds, Father. Have us walk forth in faith, love, perseverance, contending for the faith in the face of a world that is challenging, Father. 
So we pray for patience, endurance, perseverance with ourselves and in your grace and those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.